Good morning. Welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you, Hannah. Um, thank you. Apparently, we're so cute. Oh, it's cute with a T. Uh, <laughs> I have another sales pitch, uh, which is this. On your seat, you will find one of these. It's called uh, the Alpha Course. It's a flyer for the Alpha Course. This starts on Wednesday, this Wednesday, at Cavell uh, um, Wine Bar, which is just down on Hollywood. We have booked out the um, private room, which is next door to the main thing in Cavell. Uh, and basically, this is for you if you have not done it before. Can I highly recommend that you come along for the first week on Wednesday? If you are a Christian, it is a great place to ask all the questions that you never had the chance to ask as a kid growing up if you grew up with this stuff or if you have come to it late going, wait a second, what about all these things? In my experience, particularly in this country, there are a lot of people who are just sort of um, kind of indoctrinated into the Christian faith without actually it becoming their own. They then become into their 20s, early 30s, and they go, wait a second, I think I believe, but I'm not totally sure. This is for you. It's five weeks super relaxed, we buy the charcuterie and the flatbreads, you buy the drinks in the bar, we meet together and I'll speak for about 20 minutes on a different subject, then there's a little break and then we meet in small groups, like-minded people. It is not, repeat not, a Bible study where do you know the right answer? Oh, well done, you know the right answer. It is about actually getting down to the nitty-gritty and going, this is what I want to know. This is what I struggle with. What do other people think? You can say anything. You can raise any opinion. It is a good way to kind of um, get everything kind of churning over in your mind. So would you come along on Wednesday? You can come once and never come back. We're not after your money. We're not going to come chasing you down if you don't come back. Secondly, for people that you know who might find it difficult to come to church on a Sunday. They might just be a bit like, eh, I'm not sure about church on a Sunday, but I'm interested in what you believe. I'm interested in spirituality, these sorts of questions. Could you invite them as well? Take one of these, bring, it, um, bring them along on Wednesday. It would be great uh, to have you with us. There are now clipboards. Oh, it's already going around. Um, it's gone round. Good. Um, could you just tell us you're coming? Um, if you know you are, because it's helpful for our catering purposes. Thank you very much. I can't see where it is. Where is it? It's finished. Did it go around? Did anyone? No, it didn't go around. Uh, let's try that again. There's another one down there. We just need these to actually go around. It, will it, <laughs> uh, yes. So here it goes. So just uh, let us know if you're coming and just send it along the road. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. Good. There we go. So smooth. Um, secondly, uh, for those of you who weren't here last week, we had an amazing service, Easter service. The whole thing was absolutely packed. We had um, baby dedications and adult baptisms, uh, and we had a party afterwards. Can I say a huge thank you to all the people who helped out to make that happen? We really appreciate it. A uh, huge round of applause for them. Thank you very much. Um, it was a great time. That's enough of notices. So this is a, um, one of two talks over this and next week um, about the vision for the church and specifically about money. I want to just do a little caveat beforehand. If you are a guest or a visitor, you're just kind of checking us out for the first time or you're kind of still checking us out, just let this, you can just relax. 
You can just have a little snooze. Just let this wash over you. This is really for people who are the home team, uh, people who call bread home. Uh, but I'm hoping that what, you, what I talk about will be interesting uh, to everyone. Now, I am very sensitive about how money is often talked about in church. It has, on, in some cases, been used as like a stick to beat people with. Call yourself a Christian. You should be giving more money, which is what some people are thinking this is going to be now. Uh, there's that. And then on the other side, it has often been connected with a lot of uh, actually terrible theology. Uh, often the sort of prosperity gospel either in its sort of 1970s form of God wants you rich, uh, he's going to make you rich if you give him money, or in the kind of uh, millennial new form, Prosperity Gospel 2.0, just as bad theology, which is um, if we conceive it, if we believe it, it will come to us because this is what God wants. Now, neither of these have anything to do with biblical Christianity. They've got a lot more to do with Western materialism than actually the Jesus of the Bible. And just by the way, in sub-Saharan Africa and in all of the poorest parts of the world, no one is peddling the prosperity gospel. What a surprise. So I am aware of those sensitivities. And if you are feeling either of those things right now, uh, I have a lot of sympathy. They are good reasons to be a bit wary of someone talking about money in church. Here's a less good reason. Most of us don't want to hear about subjects like money and probably other things like sin and serving and maybe sex, the, the S's. We don't want to hear about them because they cut to the core of what it actually means to be a Christian. This is where the rubber hits the road, uh, in particular with regards to money, about our faith. Uh, Martin Luther the reformer, said that everyone needs to undergo three conversions, a conversion of the heart, of the mind, and of the purse. And the purse, he said, is the most difficult one. Don't picture a 15th century um, theologian with a lady purse. He means wallet. He means bank account. And Jesus, of course, talked a lot about money. Twelve of his 38 parables are about money. And he did so because he knew how powerful a force, both for good and bad, money can be. So, can I just say to us as we begin, let us avoid, to start with, beating ourselves with the money stick. We should be giving more money. Let us also avoid terrible prosperity theology. But let us not avoid allowing Jesus to speak to us about a true and good godly attitude towards money because it is when we have that that we will be free, we will be the people that we are created to be and, he is, and that is actually what he really wants for us. If a person gets their attitude towards money right, said the late Billy Graham, it will help, and it will help straighten out almost every other area of their life. So, let me read one of Jesus' parables about money. This is from Matthew 25. And Raoul, if we can have this up for the whole time, that would be great. For, says Jesus, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. 
He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine own with interest." So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has has will be sorry. For to everyone who has no no no. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast this worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So. This, this parable is written at, um, is given at the end of Matthew's Gospel, and it is part of what is commonly known as the eschatological discourse, uh, which is something you don't need to know about. Uh, but it's Jesus effectively making prophetic statements about what it is going to be like when he returns. He's predicting his death, he's predicting his resurrection, he's predicting his return to heaven, and then he will come back. And really, this eschatological discourse has two elements to it. One, be prepared. And two, be responsible. So the previous uh, parable that's been told is about ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom to come, which is Jesus saying, be prepared. And then this and the following one, which is uh, the sheep and the goats, is about being responsible. Being responsible with the sheep and the goats in regards to the poor, looking after the poor. And here, being responsible with what God has given us in the time that we are waiting for him to return. Now, there are a few red herrings in this passage which would be very easy to fixate on and in fixating on them, completely miss what else is going on here, the main point of the teaching. So I want to just quickly speak to those as we start. Let's try and get them out of the way. Firstly, the master stands for God, but we should be very wary of saying that therefore God is exactly like the master. As Jesus' Jewish listeners would have known instinctively, God, unlike the master, is neither a hard man, nor does he reap where he doesn't sow, nor does he gather where he hasn't scattered, because they would know that God is merciful 
and he is also just. He only does righteous, good things. So as soon as Jesus has said that, they would go, okay, well, he is the master, but he's not exactly like him. And the reason Jesus has said this is because he is using it as a rhetorical device. He is using exaggeration to make his point. And his point is this. Hey, you will all know, surely, that a horrible, harsh master would definitely want a return on his investment, and he would, de um, he would be sure to get that. And Jesus is saying, well, even though God is not a harsh master, even though he is good and loving and kind and just and righteous and only does good things, he still wants a return on his investment. That's the point. Secondly, it is a mistake to make too much into the punishment, uh, to read too much into the punishment meted out to the, um, uh, the third servant. It says, uh, verse 30, that he is cast out into the outer darkness. Now this is a reference to the Old Testament concept of Sheol, which is sort of a mysterious, dark, odd place um, of nothingness and loneliness. It would be very wrong to collate that with some post-Christian, uh, sorry, post-New um, Testament version of a sort of fiery hell. That's really not what's going on here. In fact, in the Jewish mindset, they didn't really think much about what happened when you died at all. In fact, life and death for the Hebrew writers was very different to our idea of it. We think either you're alive or you're dead. In the Jewish mindset, um, being alive and dead was both two states of being alive. So if you are alive, it is because you're connected to God. If you are dead, it is because you are disconnected to God, whether you are alive or dead. Does that make sense? Yes. And that is clearly what is going on here. The servant has been cast away from his master. He is no longer connected to his master because he is now separated from him. You see... What Jesus is warning here is really against the Pharisees. And he does this specifically by subverting their teaching. You see, in rabbinic teaching, actually what the servant, the third servant does, bury his uh, talent in the ground, is what they have advised everyone to do. It is seen as a wise and prudent thing if you get a whole bunch of money to bury it in the ground so no one can get it. Jesus is saying, don't do that. And also, Jesus is saying, take it to the bankers and make an investment on it, which is banned in rabbinic law. What Jesus is doing is therefore subverting the rabbinic teaching, is saying to the Pharisees, not actually that your teaching is necessarily wrong, but your attitude towards it is wrong. The Pharisees are trusting in their own teaching, in their own way of living, as a way of making them acceptable to God. And Jesus is saying it's worth nothing all your teaching, because I am here, and what I want is people to follow me. And also, I am going to die and be resurrected, and then go away for some time, and what I need you to do is actually make some, something of what I am giving you. Does that make sense? Good. So let's unpack the main point of this um, parable. As I said, the master does stand for God, and he gives talents to his three servants who stand for people like us. A talent is a measure of weight, and it's such a heavy measure that actually it can only be measured in gold. So he is giving them a huge lump of gold. Now, I know that talents sounds a bit like talents, so we think, oh, it's about gifting and about ability. And it is, in a sense, but not primarily. Primarily, this is about money, the money that you have. So point number one 
God it is who has all the money. He is the master. He has all of it, and he gives it to whoever he chooses. The money in your wallet, the money in your bank account, the money you would like to have, the money you don't have, the money you used to have, all of it is God's including, actually, the money in our daughter's allowances in their piggy banks. And this is a very important point, because often Hannah and I forget that we haven't got enough cash, and we need cash, and then we have to go into their piggy banks, and we have to take their money out, and then we can't really remember how much we borrowed, and then we probably forget to give it back, and then, you know, the whole accounting thing is a, a bit of a nightmare with our children. They know exactly how much they're owed, and we kind of ignore it and basically fail at one of the primary elements of being a good parent but it doesn't matter because it's all God's and that's what we tell them and they're happy this is a sticking point though isn't it because all of us would actually quite like to be the master and actually quite often we believe we are it's our money we earned it we get to decide what we do with it it's ours I remember um, walking in the street in London and there was this particularly well-dressed uh, young mother with her little daughter and the daughter was eating ice cream. And they were having a whale of a time. It seemed very happy. And then suddenly the daughter um, tried to grab his, uh, her mother's scarf and the mother's face just completely changed. She said, do not touch that with your sticky fingers. It's worth more than your life. How exposing of our hearts are the fingers of sticky little children. <laughs> it isn't ours, it's all God's. But if we think it's ours when it is threatened, that's when we start behaving in slightly odd ways, isn't it? Um, one of the things I've found uh, interesting about my new favorite Instagram account, uh, Preachers in Sneakers, uh, have you seen this? This is basically um, someone who's taking uh, the shoes of preachers that are particularly expensive shoes and putting them on Instagram and saying this is how much they're worth. And he's not really making any comment about it. He's just saying this. Now, I'm not going to comment about that either. And in general, I think I said this a few weeks ago, I just ignore it. You know, just ignore it. We've got problems of our own, haven't we? I mean, it's quite fun, but we've got problems of our own. Let's just concentrate on our own problems and leave them to do whatever they want. But the point I want to make is this. Quite often the comments are, yeah, but they made money out of book sales. Yeah, they made money out of this stuff, and it's their money, so they can just do, you know, let them just do whatever they want to do with it. Fundamentally unchristian. It's not theirs, it's God's. All of it. Now, responsibility may mean buying whatever. Let's leave that to them. But it's all God's. Now, the fact that the servants get different amounts is not really of much significance. They receive according to their ability, but importantly, not according to their status. It is not that one is more loved than the other. They are all equally loved, as we can see in the master's response to the two faithful servants. He says to both of them exactly the same thing, well done, good and faithful servant. 
because God does not have favorites. He loves everyone equally, and he loves you and your friends the same. He loves people who have lots of money and people who have no money exactly the same, which is more than we will ever, 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 ever be able to contemplate. Because you are a son of God, you are a daughter of God, and he thinks you are amazing. The fact that these people are given different amounts is purely actually a statement of the obvious when we look at the world. Some people have more money, some people don't. Some people are very good with money, some people are not. Everyone has different abilities. Some people are really good at singing. Some people, often the people, not today, I should say this, absolutely um, not today. In fact, very nice singing voices behind me. But often the people who don't like singing or can't really sing find themselves sitting right behind me and singing loudly into my ear. Don't be that person. We are all different. We all have different value in terms of what we can do, but we have exactly the same status before God. I often think that it would be a terrible idea for me to be given billions of dollars. I would, I would just be so bad with it. I, I, I imagined myself today actually going, what would I do with a billion dollars? And I thought I'd probably come back to Hannah and say, I've bought a panda. <laughs> Here he is. I've called him Carl. He likes, uh, he likes bamboo. And I think we're going to put him in the yard. Uh, it would be good if we found a mate for him because, you know, he's an endangered species. That's what I do. No one ever gives me a billion dollars. The point, though, really, is that God owns it all and he distributes it as he wishes but, but that there is never a lack. Because a talent is worth about a million dollars in today's money. So he is giving, this master is giving away eight million dollars, but really, in terms of what it would be able to do at that time, it's probably more like 80 million or 800 million. This, the point Jesus is making is this is a huge amount of money distributed to his servants. God liberally administers his bounty to everyone, asking that we all steward it well. So, do not feel guilty if you have a lot of money. And do not feel resentful if you have a lot less. Instead, I think we should all try and follow Paul's example, which is to be content in times of both plenty and scarcity. But also, and Jesus makes the point straight after this, we have to look after and care for the poor. It's written throughout the Bible. There is no way around it. And Jesus' next parable about the sheep and the goats is pretty hard, straight to the point. When did you look after the poor? But what will help with all of this is not wasting our time chasing after something that's never going to be ours. Now, I'm 39 years old. Actually, when I wrote this, I wrote, I'm 37. And then I was reading it to Hannah, and she said, you're 39, you idiot, uh, in her loving way. And I thought, yes, I am 39. I'm 39 years old. Just want to share that with you. <laughs> but because of my age, and only because of my age, I will never be the two things that I really could have been for the betterment of the world and the joy of all the people. But it's only because of age. The first one would have been a musical superstar. And the second would have been a sporting superstar. Or possibly a kind of combination of the both. 
like a sort of LeBron Bieber, uh, but with less muscles and less fresh-facedness. This is what I should have been, really. And I still could if it wasn't for my age. Just remember that. However, trying to chase after that now, just a waste of my time. Only because of my age. Because it's pursuing something that cannot be mine. It will suck the life out of me, actually. And so it is with money. Even if we do accumulate all the money in the world, it will only ever offer false and unsatisfactory comfort. Because being made in the image of God, as we all are, our spirits actually know that it's not really ours anyway. And so we're always asking for more, needing more. It's why some people pursue it all the more strongly, all the more vehemently, even though they have so much. You know, John D. Rockefeller, who, um, uh, what's the word, um, taking into account inflation, probably the richest man who has ever lived and possibly whoever will live, Rockefeller. He was asked at one point, um, how much is enough money? And he said, just a little bit more. Instead, Jesus says, pursue the thing that really can be yours and that really does actually satisfy the only thing, my kingdom and me. Now, this is not to take away from the joy that comes from owning and using our money and our possessions, nor the joy and meaning that is derived from earning that money and getting those possessions, but rather it is about our attitude towards them. This is all God's. Let us be continually thankful for it. And let us hold it, though, with open hands rather than tight, clenched fists, saying, do not take it from me. So, let's just be honest with ourselves for a second. Is money ruling you? Or are you operating in a serene, blissful experience just above it, going, yep, I'm fine? Symptoms of it being in charge are these. Anxiety about money. Not even wanting to look at the bank account for fear of what might be in there. Unrestricted spending, hoarding, coveting, fantasizing about what we do when we do, we will win the lottery. I know I will, I will, and this is where it's all gonna go. Now, in my experience, everyone does all of these things from time to time, irrespective of their actual uh, net value, worth. My advice would be this, let God into the anxiety. Tell him about the spending. Tell him about the hoarding and coveting and fantasizing. Be, as Paul says, filled with the Holy Spirit. Because, as Jesus identifies, all issues of money are really issues of the heart. And that we need our heart changed. And the only thing that can change our hearts is the Holy Spirit. So let him in. Talk to him about it. He knows it all already. Don't make him the problem. Make him part of the solution. Point number two, the main point of the parable, what are we doing with what we have been given? 
So the first two servants take what they've been given and go at once and make more. There is a determination to their action. There is no idleness. It says they go at once. Now, the Bible is very clear that idleness is not godly. And the master's criticism of the third servant is in part directed at his slothfulness, his idleness. There is some Christian teaching that says, actually, what we need to be is just to be. We just need to be with God. Not do anything, just be with him. Now, I understand where that comes from, and in some aspect, I guess that's uh, important. But really, as human beings, it's impossible for us to separate who we are from what we do. And to be healthy and to be full and holy and good and whole is to always be and do in equal measure. The first thing that God says to Adam and Eve, having created humanity, is go out into the chaos beyond the borders of Eden and work. Do something. And it's why, often, for those who have uh, retired or who are unemployed, depression sets in very quickly. My father was a teacher for 36 years, and at the same school, it was his whole life, he retired and then very quickly just descended. And he got um, uh, uh, a version of Alzheimer's, dementia. And it all went downhill because he had no purpose to life anymore. And that's actually very common. And can I just say, for those of you who are struggling for work at the moment or are unemployed through whatever reasons, uh, we really care about that. And we as a community need to look after people. We need to care about them. We need to meet them for drinks. We need to um, uh, give them a sense of being part of something because it is a horrible place to be in. So work, though, is a godly thing. However, whilst there are lots of things that we can work for, one of, which, one of them is not God's love. Do not work for God's love. He already loves you so much anyway. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do. It honestly does not matter what you do from this moment right now for the rest of your life. He still loves you so much that you will never, ever be able to comprehend it. Another thing that I would suggest not working for is the praise of men. I've got a number of friends in the financial services industry in the, uh, in the city of London. They are all fabulously rich. They all work um, pretty much every hour that God sends them. They are all extremely stressed, and they boast about it. It is like a badge of honor how stressed they are, how many hours they've worked, what they've been doing all their time, all their time, all their time, all the time. But they are, cannot really cope. Their home lives are kind of a mess. They're not very happy. And added to this, there is a multitude of research that shows that working more doesn't necessarily mean more pro being more productive. In fact, there are seven countries, did you know this? Seven countries that are more productive than the US. Every single one of them has shorter working weeks than the US. There is a real problem in this country of work, 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 work. It's who I am. Take a break. Back to money. The first two make more money and the master is pleased. Not because of the result, well done, he says. Not, sorry, not just because of the result. He says, well done for making more money, but also because of the me method. He calls them good. You have done a good thing. And this is important. There are lots of ways to make money. Not all of them are good. 
and because purely making money is not the end in itself, the process by which we engage in is of just as much, if not more, importance than the actual money that we make. So avoid any temptation of get-rich schemes or the lottery or anything like that. By contrast, use your gifts. Use your gifts. Use your abilities. It will be far more satisfying in the long run, which is ultimately the problem of the third servant. Now, maybe he's overburdened by being given a million or, let's say, $10 million. Maybe he is just slothful and wicked. Maybe he's scared of his master. But the third servant does nothing with what he's given. This is always a mistake. What do you have? Don't worry if it's not the same as other people. Don't worry if it's a lot less than other people or a lot more than other people. What have you got and what are you doing with it? Because there is a godly expectation, both on the part of the master and the two good servants, that what they do will grow. Because healthy things always grow. My eldest daughter, Evie, is doing a science experiment of growing sunflower seeds in our garden. One, she doesn't water, it's dead. One, she has used no soil, it's dead. And one, she waters every day in good soil and gets enough light, and already it's getting really high. Because healthy things grow. And so when we use things that are healthy, that are given to us by God, they will grow. It's just an inevitability of the kingdom. And finally, point three, using it well necessarily means giving it back. The servants give it back to the master. And they give all of it. For two reasons. One, they know whose it is anyway. And secondly, they are, as he commends them, good and trustworthy and faithful. What God is looking for is people who want to build his kingdom. That's all he really cares about. He just wants his love and justice and his mercy and his goodness and his bountiful grace to go as far wide, as far deep, as far high, as far long as it possibly can. And he wants people like you who are going, yes, I would like to do that. Because that, ladies and gentlemen, is the meaning of life. What he is doing is he is going after you and saying, come and join me in this process. It will be good for you. This does not mean that we give in order to get back. God is not a slot machine. It is not how God works. And indeed, the servants, their reward is not greater wealth, it's greater responsibility. They remain their master's servants. He does not become their sugar daddy. Instead, their reward is also of greater value than any money or possessions. It is to enter, as he says, into the joy of the master. It is to share in the heavenly experience of the kingdom of God. Right here, right now, as you sit, and also for all eternity. So, to end, what should we do with our money? John Wesley summed up biblical teaching like this. 
Make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Making all you can, we have covered. Save all you can. Biblical saving is not about hoarding up money and treasures for ourselves on earth. It is not about gaining a sense of security from having a big savings account or a retirement plan. It cannot bring that security. The only person who can bring security is God. It is also not about being miserly. Rather, it is an antidote to this Western pervasive idea of living beyond our means. It is a sign of financial responsibility. It's a resistance, and this is important, to becoming a financial burden on other people. And it is a way of being able to give to God's kingdom for future generations. Proverbs, I particularly don't like Proverbs as a book in the Bible, just so you know. I won't go into the reasons why. Uh, But there are some things that are witty and useful. One of them is these. A good man, good woman, leaves an inheritance for his children's children. So save all you can. And give all you can. In two ways. First way... Give freely and without caution. Just like God does. He gives himself to the world. And I know that we are capable of great good, all of us as people, and often we really do do what God wants us to do. But if we look at ourselves in general, we're not a great bet, are we? We tend to let God down now and again. I'm just talking from my own perspective. I'm sure you guys are all perfect. We're not a great bet. And yet, God bets on us everything. Such is the generosity of him who gave himself up for the sake of the world while we were still his enemies, while we still wanted nothing to do with him. He gave himself up for us because this is grace. This is the silly, ridiculous, makes no sense grace of the living God who says, I choose you despite everything. And so now and again, be silly and ridiculous and stupid with the way in which you give money away. Be the first at the bar. Give money to someone who really does not deserve it. Give money away like God gives himself away now and again. Be reckless. I mean this. It will do you such joy and goodness. It will do whoever receives it such joy and goodness. There is someone I remember. In fact, we, this is, uh, uh, is a um, kind of uh, window into our soul. We made him the godfather of one of our children. Uh, but he was one of those people who just, he was always first at the bar. First at the bar, first at the bar, first at the bar. Didn't necessarily have a load of money, but he was just there all the time because he knew what it was like to receive a lot and he wanted to give a lot away. Be like that now and again. Secondly, give prudently, knowledgeably, and regularly. This is not a contradiction to the previous point. Research and back winners. Do everything you can to make sure that the things you want to support or already are supporting are going to thrive. Invest in kingdom things in such a way as to give the best chance of a kingdom return. Now, I hope it goes without saying, but not all the money you, sh- you give should go to the church. It's good to give to other places as well. However, and this is where the kind of rubber hits the road for people here. 
there is a cognitive dissonance in being part of a church and not actually being fully part of it, having some parts of you held back from it. It does not need to be this church, but if it is this church, I would be giving money to it. There are no rules of how you do it. The Old Testament um, principle of a 10% tithe does no longer stand anymore because of Jesus. Okay? But it is a good guide. And I should just say this. If you look at Jesus' ethical teaching, he tends to go a bit beyond the Old Testament now and again. Not just murder, but no hatred. Not just no adultery, but no lust. <laughs> Not just 10%, but... <laughs> Our whole selves. I would think of 10% as quite a good guide to start with. Do you know what I do? What we do as a, as a family? We give 10% that just goes out of our bank account, and we just think, great, that's just done. 10%. And w w with talks like this, I just go, I don't have to hear this because I am already doing it. <laughs> and I don't agonize and I don't worry and I don't sit there with clammy palms because it's already happening and it just goes out. And I know that's happening. And then anything I want to give over that, I can just give over that, which is great. When I feel the prompting of the Spirit, I can just do it. So I would recommend having a regular weekly, bi-weekly, monthly standing order just going out to the thing that you want to support. Let me just um, tell you where we are as a church. Received Wisdom says, if you want to plant a church, what you should do is start with between one and a half and three years of kind of capital to um, start with, so that you've got a three-year kind of runoff or one and a half-year runoff. We started with three months, uh, which I won't go into the reasons why, uh, but we had three months. And we arrived here and went, oh, in three months we'll be going home. Uh, and then we took a loan for another three months. And so we had six months. And we launched just about after six months. But since then, really, we have only um, been able to operate because of the huge generosity of the people of the congregation. It's where pretty much all the money comes from, if not all the money. 99% of the money comes from. Um, but it means that we have to be self-sustaining and we have to be self-sufficient. And we need um, people to give money for this to carry on happening. So, what we're looking for is 5,000 a month as a kind of minimum, as we are right now. Should we call it eight? Let's call it 8,000 a month. <laughs> Can I ask you, are you one of, let's say, 80 people who could give 100 a month? Are you one of 40 people who could give 200 a month? I'm going to struggle with the maths now. Are you one of, where have we got to, uh, 20 people who could give 400 a month? Are you one of 10 people who could give 800 a month? Um, would you mind taking out your phone? I know you've got one. 
go to bread.church. It's a great website. I made it. And if you scroll down to the bottom, past the lovely faces, look at those lovely faces, uh, you will see all the way at the bottom a little thing that looks like that that says donate at the bottom. Click on donate. You don't have to do anything. Don't worry. Um, But there you you get to a page with some palm trees and you can click the donate button. Don't do anything. You don't have to do anything. But if you would like to, this is where you can set up regular giving. It does not matter whether it's a dollar or a thousand dollars. It matters that you are giving because you feel prompted by the Spirit and you're trying to be obedient to what God's saying. The whole of the Christian life is about following the Spirit. That is it. What is the Spirit saying to me? Now, Jesus gives us various guides of what the Spirit might be saying. But really, we are trying to respond to him. So what we're going to do is we're going to sing a song. And during this song, um, I would ask you to let God speak to you about what you might want to be able to do for this coming uh, year, let's say. You can cancel it, obviously, at any time. But it's good for you. It's good for the kingdom. It's good for the church to have the whole church really being involved in making this thing work. Good, it's enough of me. Um, Let's just, uh, as the band come up, why don't we just pray? You might just want to close your eyes. And let us allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. My advice is, if God's telling you to do something, I'd do it right away. If you leave it, then it doesn't happen. I'd like to pray particularly for those who are in real um, financial need right now. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the promises that you make. That in the same way that you clothe the birds of the air and the grass of the field, you will look after all your children with all their needs. Let us be a church of astounding generosity where we look after all who come. We look after all those that we see in need around us that we are a church where we hold things lightly and give back to you. And Father, I pray that you would provide for everything we need. Would you do it now? Let us be an antidote to all the scrambling and longing for money that we see around us. May we be people who are free and able to follow you in being generous and good. In Jesus' name, amen.